Now, usually at this point, I'll read you the section of Scripture that we're going to be covering next. I'm not going to do that just yet, because we have to kind of finish up where we left off last week. Um, we came to the end of my notes from last week, and instead of trying to hit it fast, I felt like God told us to stop, because it was too valuable for us to just rush through it. So I'm going to spend a couple of minutes here at the beginning of this week's study, finishing up where we were last week. If you remember, we ended up last week where Pilate made the wrong choice, because he was feeling pressure from the Jews, from his wife, from all these people. Herod wasn't helping him. And his real pressure, though, came from his past. If you remember how we looked at that and how things he had done in the past had put him in this situation where they had a chance to say, we're going to go over your head. We're going to go to Caesar. You're not a friend of Caesar. And when the riot was about to happen, because he didn't want to lose his position, he made the wrong choice. Now, some of you say, well, Jim, haven't we been looking at the fact that Scripture had to be fulfilled? So Pilate didn't really have a choice. Actually, he did. Let's just say hypothetically that Pilate said, this man's innocent. I'm not going to have him condemned. I, you've given me this, this, the chance to rule, and my decision is he's, I'm going to set him free. He's innocent. There's a strong chance that the Jews would have had the quick riot right then. And remember who was in town at that time? Herod was in town at that time. There's a strong chance that even if Pilate made the right choice and said, I'm not going to be a part of this, he's innocent, and he didn't do anything, and he didn't hand him over to be crucified, there's a strong chance that the uproar would have happened to the point that the powers that be would say, Herod, you're already in town, take charge of this, and Herod probably would have been the one that was involved. We don't know how God's going to play it out, but if Scripture says it's going to happen, it's going to happen, but that doesn't remove your responsibility. Now, what I want to deal with tonight to wrap up last week's is this. Satan will try to use your past against you, but Jesus wants to erase your guilt from your past if you give your life to him. Go to Psalm 103. Go to Psalm 103 and look at verses 8 through 14. In Psalm 103, starting in verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. The scripture is very clear. If you're willing to humble yourself and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need you to erase my sin, wash away my past. Your guilt will be gone in the eyes of God. He loves you. But the only issue is whether or not you're willing to give up your position in this life in order to walk with Jesus and live for the world to come. I want to kind of show you real quickly some scriptures that really talk about the fact that we need to be willing to give up this life in order to give our lives to Jesus. Too many people say, well, I believe in Jesus, I trust Him as my Savior, but they're really not willing to give up their control of this life. And the Bible is very, very clear that a part of our giving our lives to Jesus and asking Him to be our Savior is to give Him control here and now. We live for the world to come and the life to come. We don't live for now. Go to John chapter 11. Let me remind you of what was going on with the Pharisees. In John chapter 11, verses 45 through 48, 
It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in Jesus. And, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come, come and take away both our place and our nation. You remember? What were they more concerned about? They've seen the miracles. They, they saw what he was doing. But they were more concerned about their position, their place, and this nation. Again, Pilate made the wrong choice. Why? He was more interested in keeping his position there in Rome, his authority, and he made the wrong choice because of it. Go to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, look at verses 24 through 27. In Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he has done. Again, the Bible says if you're going to give your life to Jesus, you no longer live for this life. You live for the life to come. And you deny yourself, you deny your plans and your wishes and your dreams, and you say, Lord, my life is yours. Think about Paul. When he met Jesus face to face, he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the next question he asked him was, What would you have me do? And his answer was, I've chosen you to be my instrument to go preach to the Jews and the Gentiles and to their kings. And then the scripture says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul lived a life of suffering. But Paul understood something, partially because he had been given a glimpse of heaven. Go to Romans chapter 8 real quick and look at one verse, verse 18. Why was Paul willing to go through all that he went through in this life? Well, he wasn't living for this life. Look at what he says in verse 18 of Romans 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He had been given a glimpse of heaven. He wasn't allowed to talk about it. But he said this much, I've seen it, and what is to come far outweighs anything we go through here. So I'm willing to give up. Well, Paul said himself in Romans, sorry, Philippians chapter 3, all those things that I had, I consider them now a loss. I was moving up in this world, climbing the chain of command in the Pharisees, but I now consider that all rubbish, that I may know Christ in the power of His resurrection, fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. And I just want to challenge you. As you say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Are you a follower of Jesus as long as He lets you be in charge of your life? Or are you willing to live the life that God has for you, even if it's not what you have in mind? Pilate made the wrong choice because he was more interested in living for this life in the position that he had than doing what he knew was right. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verses 18 through 22. As Jesus called his disciples, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and, their father and followed him. When the disciples followed Jesus, what did they do? They left everything and followed him. By the way, what do we know about how these guys' lives ended up? They were all martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. But, well, go to Hebrews chapter 11. This says it way better than I ever could. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, I'm just going to read to you three quick sections from the Hall of Fame of Faith. All these were commended for their faith. Listen to what the scripture says in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. In Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. How many of us will only follow if we know how it's going to play out? And he went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith he lived. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Jump over to verses 24 through 26. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Folks, I can't say it any better than this. Men and women who are commended for their faith aren't living for this life. You've heard me say it. Pray for your nation. Pray for your country. Pray for your leaders, as the Bible says. But don't get all upset about what's happening here as much as living for what's to come. We're to be light and salt in this earth, but the Bible says that wickedness is going to increase. The love of most is going to grow cold. But those who stand firm to the end, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, will be evident by the fact that we are resilient to say, even if he slay me, yet will I trust him. I don't live for this life. I believe that Jesus is God, the one and only God. I believe he lived as a man, died without sin, was punished in my behalf. I believe he rose from the dead and is giving salvation to all who believe in him. And the more you say that in this world, the more you will be mocked, the more you will be ridiculed, the more you will be ostracized, and your fleshly desire will be to try to keep some kind of semblance of position and, and, and respect in this world. Give your life to Jesus Christ, not just your eternity, but everything. Don't be like Pilate, who knew what was right, had many people sharing with him what was right, but he made the wrong choice because he was more interested in this life and the position and the power that he had. Be willing to give some of that stuff up to follow Jesus, and you will be rewarded, the Bible says, hundred times, more than you can ever imagine. And one day, when you get to the reward, you're going to feel really embarrassed that you even tried to hang on to anything here. All right, with all that said, Go with me to Matthew 27, and we'll look at our section for tonight. Matthew 27, verses 32 through 56. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Listen closely. It's important, important later. And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the, teen, the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, Jesus had been tried, not found guilty of any crime, but they decided to put him to death because he's claimed to be God. Go back to Matthew 26 and look at verses 63 through 66. Ultimately, what they decide is his reason for death is that he claimed to be God. And Matthew 26, look at verses 63 through 66. This is when he's before the Sanhedrin and the council. He says, Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. The blasphemy that they're accusing him of is the fact that he claimed to be God. Go to John chapter 19. It gets a little more clear there in John's account of this. Go to John 19 and look at verses 1 through 7. John 19 verses 1 through 7. It says, Then Pilate took, and, took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again to, and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate, sa Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Jump down to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24, in one verse, verse 16. This is what they're referring to when they say we have a law, and according to that law he needs to be put to death. In Leviticus 24, verse 16. It says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. By the way, 
For years, we've thought that using the name of God in vain is like using God's name for a cuss word. And that's a part of it. But really, if you do a study of using God's name in vain or blaspheming God, it's when you claim the name of God. In other words, claim to be his child, claim to be a follower of Jesus, but don't act like him. When our kids were little and they were still living in our homes, and then he grew up to the point that they would be going out with their friends or to work or whatever or off to school, we'd always say to them as they head out the door, act like a relative. In other words... You represent us when you go out. Act like a Johnson. You represent us is what we meant by that. In the same way, if you claim the name of God and the name of Christ, but you don't act like Christ, that's blaspheming. That's taking his name in vain. And the law said anybody that blasphemes God and takes his name in vain shall be put to death. What Jesus did here was he didn't just take the name meaning I'm a follower of God or a believer in God. He said, I am God. You say, when did he say that? Well, besides what I just read to you, go to John chapter 8. It can't be any more clear. As you're turning to John 8, John 8 we're going to be in verses 48 through 59. Remember that when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, Moses asked him, what's your name? As I go back and tell the people that their God sent me to them to set them free, what's your name so I can tell them who sent me? And God's answer was, my name is what? I am. Well, look at John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered Jesus and said, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and, and and so, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So at this point, they try to stone him, but it's not time for him to die. But when it comes time for him to die, according to God's plan, even though the law said that he should be stoned, they couldn't stone him. Because at this point, Rome says, we're in charge and you can't put anybody to death. And therefore, the prophecy that he would be crucified was fulfilled. Well, let me ask you a question. You have to decide for yourself. And I mean, everybody that's listening right now as well online, is Jesus God or is he not? I mean, you have to decide. That's the decision everybody has to come to. Either if he isn't God, he was a liar because he claimed to be God. More than once. If he isn't, he's a lunatic, possibly then. Maybe he's not a liar. Maybe he's just crazy and didn't know any better. But if he is, that means he's Lord. And we all have to decide, every one of us. That's the big decision. Who do you say that I am, Jesus says. Go to Acts chapter 5 real quick. Look at verses 17 through 39. I'm taking you here for a reason. I'm going to see if you can track with me. I'm not going to tell you ahead of time why we're going here. In Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 39, 
Acts chapter 5, verse 17, the high priest rose up with all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, would come of it, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And that we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing." After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you to keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Does anybody know why I brought you to that passage of Scripture? What did, what did Gamaliel say? He said, if this is of man, it's going to die. If it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. By the way, how many years ago did Gamaliel say that? 2,000 years ago. What does that tell us, folks? This is, this is the truth. Jesus is God. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. And Jesus claimed to be God, and the Jews said, he has to die because he's blasphemed. He's claimed to be God. Well, the reason he wasn't to be put to death for saying that is because he didn't lie. He was God. He is God. And the fact that Christianity even exists to this day is proof and evidence of it. It's of God. Years ago, C.S. Lewis said you have to decide either he was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Everybody listening, hopefully, has made the right decision when it comes to Jesus. Now, Jesus, at this point that we read here in Matthew 27, has already been scourged and is now being forced to carry his cross to the place of his crucifixion. Now, the scripture doesn't say that he fell. That's all from watching the movies and the pageants that we've seen put on and the passion plays and whatever. But the scripture says that at some point he's unable to carry his cross any further. Because of the loss of blood and the weakness, Jesus is unable to carry his cross all the way to the place of his death. So they compel a man of Cyrene named Simon to carry it for Jesus's for Jesus the rest of the way. And chances are real good this Simon of Cyrene might have been a black man. If you look at where he's from, there's a strong chance that he was. I love that. I love that. 
They offered Jesus, though, when he's crucified, he's put up on the cross. They offered him painkiller. Look at verse 34. They offer him painkiller to ease his suffering, but he won't take it. Look at verse 34 again in Matthew 27. Verse 34. And they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Mark's account actually gives us a little more information and tells us that it's myrrh. Go to Mark chapter 15 real quick. Verses 21 through 23. Mark 15, Mark 15, verses 21 through 23. And they compelled a passerby of Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus, after tasting what was in the wine, refused, not because it would be a sin, you do realize later on we read that when he called out Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, they thought he was calling Elijah, so they quickly put some wine on a sponge and put it to his mouth, and he did drink that. But this wine was mixed with gall. It was mixed with myrrh, which was a narcotic, which was a painkiller. It wouldn't have been a sin for Jesus to take a painkiller while he was going through the cross. You know why? Because of Proverbs 31, verse 6. Go to Proverbs 31. A lot of us hear Proverbs 31, and we think about that whole passage about the godly woman. And that does begin later on in the proverb. But look at Proverbs 31, verse 6. In Proverbs 31, look at verse 6. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Isn't that interesting? It wouldn't have been wrong for Jesus to take the wine that was mixed with gall or myrrh, to take a narcotic or a painkiller during this time. But Jesus knew that he needed to fulfill, he needed his full faculties at the end to fulfill all of Scripture. As you're going to see, and this is what we're going to do tonight, in the time that we have left, we're going to spend the rest of our time dealing with Jesus' crucifixion and what happened on the cross. Matthew doesn't tell us the whole story. Mark doesn't tell us the whole story. Luke doesn't tell us the whole story. John doesn't tell us the whole story. But what I'm going to do in the time that we have tonight is I'm going to walk you through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts of what happened at the cross and during his crucifixion. And then we're going to go back and we're going to put in order what happened to Jesus on the cross. And it's going to be an eye-opening study for us, hopefully. But Jesus knew that he needed full faculties to the end. He still had scripture to be fulfilled and he had more work to do. So here's what we're going to do now. I'm just going to read to you Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account just of his crucifixion. We've already read Matthew 27, 32 and following. Go with me to Mark 15 and look at verses 21 through 39. Mark 15, 21 through 39. If you want, as you're reading, make a couple of notes here and there in your notes about things you see that you hadn't seen before in the other accounts. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and with the scribes mocked him to another, one another and saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw it in this way, he breathed his last. He said, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Go to Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, verses 24 through 49. Luke 23, verse 24. Sorry, 26, Luke 23, 26 through, 20, through 39. Sorry, 49. Sorry, Becky. You haven't tried to keep up with me, and I keep changing the scriptures. As they led him away, they seized one of Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say in the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. By the way, that's Revelation. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Go to John 19. John 19, verses 17 through 37. John 19, starting in verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. 
Pilate also wrote an, an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered him, What I have written, I have written. Does that sound like the Pilate we had talked about last week? He didn't care what they thought until it affected his position. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see who is it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now let me keep reading just a little bit longer since it was the day of preparation. And so that the bodies wouldn't remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. By the way, have you ever thought about the fact that the scripture clearly says that there was a thief, Jesus in the middle, and another thief? The scripture said it over and over, didn't it? But when it came time to break their legs, they went to one around Jesus, and then to the other, and then they came to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think they'd be going boom, boom, boom down the line? This already shows you that even the guys who are doing this are realizing there's something different about this guy. Well, hopefully you all will see the same thing even more. Those of us who are here tonight, those who are watching online, you, you hopefully, you know who Jesus is in the sense that you believe that he is the Christ and that he is God and that he died for your sins but I pray that tonight, as we take a look at this, that you will have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. Because I want to take now what we've just read and put it in order of how they happened. And you may be surprised at some of the things that God shows us tonight. The first thing that I believe from the scriptures that Jesus said that we have recorded, there are seven sayings of Jesus while he was on the cross. The first one, you may be surprised. I don't believe it was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For years, I thought that was the first thing he cried out. You're going to find that later on. Actually, I think from putting it all in context, the first thing Jesus says is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If you were to go back and look at Luke 23, verse 34, and if you were to study in the Greek, a very interesting thing comes out. In the Greek, in the tense that it is in the Greek, we read it in English that he said it one time. But actually in the Greek, it's actually written as if he was repeating it over and over and over. 
In other words, as they're nailing him to the cross, as the cross is laid down and they're stretching him out, you can picture Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they stand him up and put the cross in the hole and he falls down and all of that happens to his body. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he quietly, but loud enough for people to hear, is praying for them as they were doing this. They knew some of what they had done. I mean, Judas knew what he had done, didn't he? But they didn't know the enormity of what they were doing. Judas knew, I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate knew, this man's done nothing wrong. We see later on, one of the thieves, and I can't wait to get to him, realizes that he's done nothing wrong. As I just touched on, as they went around him to break the other legs before they came to Jesus, they know there's something. They had an idea of what they were doing, but they didn't know the enormity of it. You want proof that they didn't know the enormity of it? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 8. 1 Corinthians 2. Look at what verse 8 says. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I don't think even Satan and his authorities fully understood what they were doing. Because if they did, they wouldn't have done it. Okay, let me ask you a question. If the demons, and maybe even the angels, because the Bible says the angels long to look into this, don't fully understand the enormity, of what happened at the cross? Wouldn't you and I agree that there's probably a strong chance even we who are Christians and followers of Christ don't fully understand all that happened at the cross? I'm going to tell you right now, that should be the joy of the rest of our lives. Spending time in prayer and in the word, allowing the scriptures to speak to us of what all was accomplished for us at the cross. Again, I could take the rest of tonight into next week, showing you what the scripture says about what was really accomplished at the cross. But we don't have time to get into that. The next thing he says, though, I believe, is today you will be with me in paradise. Remember in Luke 23, the one thief turns to the other thief who's making fun of him, says, save yourself and us. The other guy says, hang on, hang on. Don't you fear God? We're being punished justly. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, that's all I'm looking for, dude. Faith. And today you'll be with me in paradise. But why is this interesting? Do you remember what we read in Matthew? Go back real quick to Matthew 27 and look at verse 44. And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in this way. We also see in Mark's account, both robbers were mocking him at the beginning. What do you think changed that one thief's mind besides the spirit of God? Could it have been the fact that he was next to a man the whole time saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that was used of God to change this man's heart. Or all of a sudden he realized, you know what? I think this guy's legit. I think he really is who he says he is. And that's a wonderful thing for all of us, folks. I know there comes a point where the Spirit of God stops drawing people. The Bible teaches that. But at the same time, that's not my call and that's not your call. And I'm going to preach to people to the day of their death. You may even have a family member that died and you don't believe they're in heaven. I don't want you to imagine that they're there. But at the same time, we also don't know because we have a God that will chase someone right to their grave. Father, 
Forgive them. They don't know what they're turned into. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I think the next thing that he said was, woman, behold your son. And behold your mother. Go to John 19 again. Look at verses 25 through 27. John 19, 25 through 27. By the way, it is, you have no idea how hard it is for me to just cover each of these so quickly. I could take a whole Bible study week for each one. But I believe God doesn't want us to do that. I think he wants us to put them together tonight. In John 19, 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. There was also Mary, the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved, standing, and, and the disciple whom he loved, that's how John describes himself all the time in his gospel, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. This is further evidence of the fact that most likely Joseph had died. And most likely Joseph died a long time ago because of the fact that Jesus, being the oldest, stayed with his mother for a long time. His public ministry didn't begin until he was 30. And so there's a strong chance that Joseph died early on. But at this point, in the midst of taking care of eternal matters for the world, Jesus also showed his concern for the here and now of this life. Isn't that interesting? In the middle of taking care of eternal matters for the world, Jesus takes the time while he's on the cross to realize my mom doesn't have anybody to take care of her right now. Go to Matthew chapter 6, 20, 26, not, not 6, Matthew 26. Let me read you a very, very familiar passage, but maybe it'll read a little differently now. Look at verses 25, Matthew 26, verses 25. So, sorry, I was right. It was Matthew 6. I apologize. Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33. Matthew 6, verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O of you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If Jesus cared enough in the middle of dying on the cross to make sure his mother was taken care of, he knows about everything we're going through right now, does he not? Remember that. Say, Lord, you already know. You don't need me to pray over and over and over to get you to move. You care. And I come to you and say, would you meet this need? Believe that he will. And then trust that he gets to do it in his timing because he knows what's best. I believe the fourth thing that he said in the order was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Go to Matthew 27, verse 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. Actually, we'll go to verse 45 because it'll be helpful for us. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when was Jesus put on the cross? Does anybody know what hour it was? It was the ninth hour. Nope. It was, no, it was, he was put on the cross at nine. And then 9 a.m., all right, it was 9 a.m., which is the third hour, third hour, from six to nine, third hour. And then at the sixth hour, which is noon, darkness came over the land. And then at the ninth hour, he cries out, my God, why, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there were three hours of darkness over the land, which is starting to get everybody's attention. Like, okay, it's not supposed to be dark here at noon, you know. But about the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go to Psalm 22. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? May I ask you a question? Was Jesus quoting David on the cross? Or was David quoting Jesus when he prophesied? David's quoting Jesus, and we can prove it. Go to verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by all the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? Word for word, what they were saying while Jesus was on the cross. Look at verse 14. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. It's for interesting. Actually, when I teach on the book of Revelation and how to study Revelation and how to study prophecy, I always take people to hear first. Because this is what I try to show them. Look. When David wrote this, he himself probably had no idea what he was writing and why he wrote that. And if you had read that after David wrote it, you'd say, dude, sounds like you're having a bad day, but when did this happen to you? And David could only have answered, look, I don't know why God had me wrote it. It must be for something that's coming up, but I haven't had my hands in fierce Pete. Yeah, people have treated me bad, and I felt like God's forsaken me a few times in my life, but some of these things, they didn't happen to me. But if you had put those in your heart, if you knew Psalm 22 and you happen to be alive at that time that Jesus is on the cross and you walk by and heard, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then all of a sudden you hear, my tongue steps to the roof of my mouth or I thirst. My bones are out of joint. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They're casting lots for my clothing. You would have gone, that's what the prophecy was pointing to. That's why we're to study the book of Revelation and to read it and to take to heart what is written in it. Because if we happen to be around and some of it's starting to come into place, we'll start to say this is what the prophecies were saying. Let me ask you a question, though. Was this the father inflicting pain on an unwilling son? 
I mean, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this going on? You would think that maybe the father is inflicting pain on an unwilling son. Go to Isaiah 53. Look at what it says in Isaiah 53. Look at verses 4 through 6. And then verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Some people would say it was the Lord's will to crush him. That father is just being mean to the son and the son's just taking it on our behalf. No. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Don't let my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you missed the fact that the scripture all along has said that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one. They're always in unity. And not only that, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 18. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered one for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected by, for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I'll make with them after those day, days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus said, I've come to do your will. Jesus is in league with the Father for this to happen. The Father is not punishing the Son angrily and the Son saying, what's going on? The Son willingly had agreed with the Father before the creation of the world that this would be what happens. We, for years, and I'll get right to you, Bill, for years we've heard people say that the courtroom scene where God the Father is the judge and we're the defendants and our defense attorney is Jesus and the Father says, that person, Jim Johnson, is guilty. And then the defense attorney stands up and says, Daddy, Daddy, change your mind. I've done this for him. And he holds out his hands and his feet. You've heard the preachers talking about that, haven't you? 
That having the Father feel one way and the Son feel a different way is impossible. They've always been one. They've always been in unity. They've always agreed together to do this. But what he's doing is he's showing us that during this time, he's experiencing somehow a separation from the Father, a forsaking. i got to be honest with you, folks. I don't know how God can separate himself from himself. I don't know how God can break fellowship with himself. But there's always a unity. There's always a unity. Go ahead, Bill. You were going to say something? Oh, it's very wrong to think the Father didn't experience the same pain. Right. The Bible's very clear that we grieve the Spirit, we quench the Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all feel the same thing. You're right. I love it. Yes. We might become His righteousness. In other words, how He became sin was not by doing anything sinful, but the Father imputed our sin to Him. That's how we're righteous. Not by doing anything righteous. It takes the righteousness of Jesus and just puts it on us. Thank God. You When your child hurts, you hurt. So let me ask you a question. Did the father do it or did the son do it? Good answer. You get to go home tonight. The fifth thing that he said was, I thirst. Remember Psalm 22, verse 15? My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. We have seen Psalm 42, where they, uh, the psalmist, the sons of Korah, write about, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. When can I go be with God? I'm going to lay a homework challenge to you. I don't have the time tonight to take you through it. I'm just beginning to look at it in this way. A lot of times when David or some of the psalmists write psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were prophesying about Jesus. We've already seen that. Go back and read Psalm 42 on your own, the whole chapter, and just, verses 1 through 11, and just imagine that it might be referring to Jesus on the cross. Remember Jesus saying, I thirst? And you go to Psalm 42 where it says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you. When can I go be with God? We used to have this fellowship. There's these people that are all against me. It's very interesting. I'm not saying it's a definite, but go reread it and don't put yourself there as much as put Jesus there. I'm not saying we shouldn't put ourselves there as well, but just let the Spirit speak to you. It's interesting. That's a homework for those that want it. The sixth thing that Jesus says on the cross is, it's finished. The Greek is to telestai, paid in full. It's an accounting term. It's all been paid. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. By the way, he canceled the record of debt. He canceled all of it. He's forgiven all our trespasses. Go to Hebrews 9. Look at verses 24 through 28. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. 
For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sins completely. Now I say that because some of us have a tendency to feel like we have to do stuff to make it right with God. If you feel like you have to do something to make it right with God, you're thinking Jesus didn't pay the full price for your sin and you got to do a little bit of penance. You got to do a little bit of something. And some of you might have been taught by the religious leaders of your church that you had to do penance and you had to do things to get back right with God. Then Jesus didn't pay the full price if you've got to pay a price yourself. Jesus paid a full price. I love it, Bill. It's a full, it's a free gift. The last thing he said is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now we're going to pick up back here next week because it's going to lead us into a cool conclusion of our looking at Jesus on the cross. But let me just say this to you. At this point, Jesus' fellowship with the Father is restored. All through his life, he called God his Father. But during these horrific three hours, we see him in agony, calling out to God. Now we see the fellowship is restored. And the Son is receiving what he prayed for in the garden. We're going to come back there next week, and we're going to take a look at what Jesus prayed for in the garden right before the cross. And I'm just give you a little hint. He's ready to receive the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. He struggled for a while in human flesh like you and I do, but nothing like he did. And he prayed in the garden, Father, I'm ready to go back be with you. I'm ready to get out of this flesh. I'm ready to go and get the glory that I had before. And he's about to have that happen because he says, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. What was the first thing he prayed on the cross? Father, forgive him. And the last one is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A lot more to look at that. We'll pick that up next week. Love you all. We'll see you.